Cleveland Dam disaster. Yesterday, the spillway gate uh, released a large volume of water. What caused the deadly rush of water that swept people away with no warning? Border restrictions relaxed just a little. It's just going to be so, so sweet to have them here. What it means for Canadians separated from loved ones. And the White House COVID outbreak. I'm going to Walter Reed Hospital. I think I'm doing very well. What happens now that U.S. President Donald Trump is infected? You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The search will continue for a second victim believed to have been swept away by a malfunction at the Cleveland Dam. A huge torrent of water rushed down the Capilano Canyon, killing one man and forcing several others to scramble for their lives. Aaron MacArthur joins us live from the mouth of the Capilano. Aaron, what's the latest on that search? Yeah, Sophie, as you said, a second victim, a 27-year-old man who has not been seen since yesterday afternoon and at this point presumed dead. At first light, North Shore rescue members combing the Capilano River, searching for another victim. Overnight, it became clear that six people were swept into the river. Four managed to find their way out, but now one person is dead and a second person is unaccounted for. We now know that there is a second adult who was swept into the river. Um, that person has not been found. The unexpected water release from the Cleveland Dam caught dozens of people along the river completely unaware. Those who scrambled to safety still in shock at how fast it all happened. I just ran to the shore and then by the time I uh, ran to the shore, uh, the water was at my waistline. Tried to find the, the, the way back, but it was ba already buried in, in the water. Metro Vancouver taking responsibility for the huge volume of water sent over the dam Thursday afternoon. The spill happening during maintenance work. An investigation is ongoing to find out how the massive drum gate was opened. Uh, we're looking at computer systems, operating protocols, safety procedures, mechanical and human error. And uh, I can assure you that we'll leave no stone unturned. Now there are questions about proper warning for people downstream. The Squamish First Nation wants to know if there are warning sirens installed like other dammed rivers in BC. I think we're going to bring it back to the table on uh, developing some protocols and, uh, and see where we can build our relationship. There's no alarm on the dam that's public facing. Friday morning, members of the Squamish Nation came to the mouth of the river to perform a cleansing ceremony honoring the dead and pausing to remember how much worse this could have been. Aaron, will the RCMP be looking at negligence or a criminal investigation? Sophie, at this point, it's still a coroner's investigation, but that could change. The RCMP will follow the information wherever it leads. At this point, likely everyone waiting for that Metro Vancouver report before anyone takes another step. Sophie, Chris, back to you. Aaron MacArthur in North Vancouver. All right, let's uh, check the COVID-19 numbers today. We have 161 new confirmed cases after testing nearly 12,000 people, which means our positivity rate is 1.35%, still well below 2. BC's total case number, 9,381. 
Sadly, we've had three more deaths, which means 238 people have now died of COVID-19 complications in our province. There are 63 people in hospital, 16 of those patients in ICU. 7,813 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 1,302 active cases and 3,114 people in isolation. Well, changes are coming to Canada's current travel policies. The federal government is easing restrictions to allow for more people to reunite. As John Hua reports, it is welcome news, but it comes too late for families who had to say their final goodbyes over FaceTime. I'm going to tell them that I missed having them here. 211 days. And I love them very much. That's how long Jennifer North has dreamed about having her partner, Eric Schonacher, back by her side in New Westminster, B.C. I was the one who was thinking, gosh, are we going to be able to get through this? And he was always saying, yes, we will. But her partner from Marysville, Washington, was barred from crossing the Canada-U.S. border. Their three-and-a-half-year romance, not enough reason for essential travel. We know in some cases, people still haven't been able to be with the ones they love. I know that for them, the waiting and uncertainty has not been easy. The Canadian government is now opening up COVID-19 border restrictions to help reunite families and people in exclusive relationships. And I just went, yes, because I just thought, finally, after all this time. Proof of a long-term relationship will include a notarized declaration. The couple must be together for at least a year with contact in person, not just online. Now those who could not come with their families can. And I want to reassure every single Canadian watching this that we will do so safely. Foreign nationals will also be able to come to Canada, previously kept from loved ones during the toughest of times. It means in the last final moments, you have missed out on something most beautiful, most crucial and most sad because of the arbitrary distinction on who was considered family. Compassionate exemptions include being with a loved one near the end of life, providing urgent medical care to someone who is very ill, or attending a funeral. Hello. The days of connecting over FaceTime might soon be over. The countdown to when these lovebirds can be in the same country, hopefully coming to an end. I love you. I love you too. John Hua, Bye. Global Bye. News. Well, the date is set. On October 13th, Sonia Furstenau, Andrew Wilkinson and John Horgan will come together for a televised leaders debate right here on Global. As Richard Zussman reports, in this unusual campaign, the debate could prove to be crucial for British Columbians to decide who will lead the province through the pandemic. The masks are coming off. Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau, Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson and NDP leader John Horgan said to square off for the campaign's one and only primetime televised debate. We say campaigns matter, not just because it's a cliche, but because they really do. And debates are often, but not always, a hinge point. The leaders set to tackle big election issues, including leadership and managing the COVID-19 pandemic. For both Wilkinson and First to Know, it's their first time in the election televised debate. And so I very much look forward to the debate, and I very much look forward to continuing to showing British Columbia that they have an alternative in this province. Wilkinson has the most to gain. He trails in all the polls, his party struggling to gain momentum. But he's aware a good debate performance could change that. We're confident that a debate will give us a chance to get the message across, 
to show leadership and to be the party of choice for British Columbians. In 2017, the spotlight was on NDP leader John Horgan, and especially his temper. You're always quick with a smile and a promise, but you don't deliver. This time, he needs to convince voters they can still trust him after breaking his promise and calling an early pandemic election. British Columbians want to talk about issues. They want to make sure that we're focusing on their needs and their concerns. I'm happy to do that anywhere, anytime. This campaign has included very little door knocking, no rallies. And so the debate is an opportunity for the candidates to speak directly to voters. The question is, do debates still matter? In this case, uh, Andrew Wilkinson maybe isn't as well known uh, to British Columbians. He's been the leader of the party for a little while, but he still has a chance to sort of raise his profile. As for who has the most to lose, that seems to be Andrew Wilkinson as well. If they're getting to know somebody, uh, they need, uh, you need you have the you have to do your best on on that debate night, and I think that's where there's a bit more pressure on Wilkinson. The debate also comes right before advanced polls open, meaning for Wilkinson and First to Know, it's the first chance to make a last impression. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry as well, who joins us live from Victoria here. Keith, uh, how important really are debates? Because historically, you know how difficult it is to throw a knockout punch. Yeah, I mean, people are looking for the knockout punch. That rarely happens. And really, this is a chance, as Jerry Byer said and Richard pointed out, it's a chance for Andrew Wilkinson and Sonia First to know to get known, to raise their profile. That's the best thing I think they've got, the best hope going into this. But we have had one debate in B.C., a very memorable one. It was the first televised leaders debate, actually, in history. Back in 1991, you had Mike Harcourt, the NDP leader, poised to become premier. Rita Johnson, the outgoing social credit leader, uh, squabbling uh, on the stage over an issue. And the unknown there then a leader of the B.C. Liberal Party who had no seats in the legislature made his mark and as a result the B.C. Liberals became what they are today. Here's a look back at 1991's campaign. We want the numbers, Mike. We want the numbers. I've told you the numbers. The, you don't the bottom have line any is a balanced budget. We'll You're set tough priorities. To give us the numbers. We'll set tough priorities above the line, and the bottom line is a balanced budget. You're gutless. You, you this, won't give this, us the numbers. This, this it reminds me of the legislature, and here's a classic <laughs> example of why nothing ever gets done in the province of British Columbia. Right here. You saw it. That was Gordon Wilson, of course, the leader of the B.C. Liberals. He shot up in the polls as, as a result of that. But, Chris, that's been really the only debate that had an impact on the outcome. Wilson, of course, didn't win that election. Harcourt did. Uh, I think candidates over time have begun to look at these debates as play-it-safe moments. They don't want to make a mistake. More is more of a priority than finding that proverbial knockout punch. But it all takes place Tuesday, October 13th, and we'll be carrying it live, of course. Looking forward to that broadcast. All right, thanks, Keith. Saanich teenager Kate O'Connor will turn 18 just two weeks before Election Day, not only making her eligible to vote, she will also be on the ballot for the Green Party in the riding of Saanich South. And despite being the youngest candidate in this election by far, Nadia Stewart reports O'Connor is in it to win it. It was the lack of youth representation in the legislature that prompted Kate O'Connor to run in this year's election. The youngest MLA is 35, which is ridiculous, which means that no one under 35 in British Columbia has a say in the future of this province. That's ridiculous, and that's part of the reason I decided to run. She is 17 years old. Two weeks before Election Day, on October 24th, she'll be old enough to vote. She says younger British Columbians are feeling left out of the process. There's a huge portion of the electorate who feel like they're not represented, whose ideas are not reflected in the legislature. And having a young person in the legislature would engage a huge portion of the electorate. There are two other teens who've thrown their hat in the ring. 
18-year-old Adam Bremner Atkins in Coquitlam, Birth Mountain. 19-year-old Brandon Russell is running as an independent in Kamloops, North Thompson. I know there's kind of the stereotype that young people are kind of apathetic or disinterested, but I think there is a, such a strong interest in politics. Adriana Tom got into politics in 2011. <laughs> during a federal election campaign that saw Michael Ignatieff, Stephen Harper, Elizabeth May, and the late Jack Layton square off. Now Tom is the BC Youth Parliament Premier. I think in general, people are pretty quick to dismiss young people in, and young voices in all fields. Just because we might not have the same number of years doesn't mean we don't have a voice, we don't have an opinion, we don't have a view. The hope for O'Connor and her fellow young candidates is that those views will be better represented because their voices are part of the conversation. Just under 52% of young voters who cast their ballots in the 2017 election were under the age of 45. What impact the youth vote will have in this election remains to be seen. Nadia Strzok, Global News. Tonight, the third part in our series on B.C.'s other public health emergency, the toxic drug supply and homelessness exacerbated by the pandemic. The provincial health officer says fighting those issues and keeping neighborhoods safe must involve everyone, including police. Jordan Armstrong shows us how the VPD are responding. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a wonderful day. Welcome to Yale Town. He thinks the neighborhood is in great shape. But the police stats suggest otherwise. Unprovoked attacks, assaults, um, where somebody's minding their own business, uh, a mother walking with a child, we're seeing it firsthand. It's an incredible challenge. When it comes to battling the opioid crisis and homelessness, Dr. Bonnie Henry believes it starts with safe supply and supportive housing. But it cannot end there. There are roles for all levels of government, including local. So we need as well to work with the municipal leadership to, to, to step up things like police patrols in the appropriate way. How do you define stepping up these patrols but appropriately? No, and, and I understand that, and I understand there, there needs to be a balance, and, and a lot of these initiatives should not be driven by police. But when you go to the numbers of calls we go to, and I know there's a narrative out there about policing should get out of the mental health space, for instance, but know that over 80% of the calls that we're going to involves some degree of danger or violence. Vancouver Police Deputy Chief Howard Chow says officers have been redeployed from other neighborhoods to downtown, the goal being more foot and bike patrols. But he says those officers often find themselves busy assisting other first responders. I talked about an incident that took place just yesterday where two ambulance attendants were tending to a patient and somebody randomly came up and unloaded a fire extinguisher on them. What's needed? Chow says more wraparound services, more government funding, more help. He points out the increased police presence isn't just for the benefit of homeowners. People with mental illness are 23 times more likely to be a victim of a violent crime than anyone else. Now that's something that's means that we got to do better for the, these individuals. So that's the view from police. As for what the city's doing, we were told Mayor Kennedy Stewart was not available Friday. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. The deepening mystery of what was really going on at the notorious Smugglers Inn. Global News uncovered court documents that show the inn's owner, an American now charged with helping people enter Canada illegally, might have been involved in a lot more than that.
The allegations that reveal his connections to the highest office in Washington state. A random attack on the streets of New York City and the beloved celebrity who took the punch. That's coming up on the news hour. And we'll have the latest on U.S. President Donald Trump and why he's now in hospital after testing positive for COVID-19. Right now, though, more shocking details in the Global News exclusive report on the activities at that notorious Smuggler's Inn and the U.S. court case against Robert Boulay. The inn's American owner is charged with helping people enter Canada illegally. U.S. court documents allege he was aware of more than just people crossing the border illegally and may have used his connections with the Washington State Governor's Office to his own personal advantage. Paul Johnson has this NewsHour follow-up. For the Canadian neighbors of Robert Boulay's Smugglers Inn, years of scenes like this made few surprised when Canada charged him with people smuggling. But the latest news is even more intriguing. Documents that surfaced in a different court case in Seattle show that Boulay says for years he'd been an informant for the U.S. border authorities, passing on details of people allegedly sneaking into Canada from his property. But it wasn't just people. In a deposition given by Boulay two years ago, he talked about drugs moving across the border, north and south, ecstasy, cocaine and marijuana. He talked about one instance where a half million dollars worth of drugs was brought in and how he learned to spot drug runners by the way they handled their luggage. I was shocked. Len Saunders is a Blaine immigration lawyer who's known Boulay for years and says the news of his alleged collaboration with the U.S. government is potentially explosive. If the American government knew that Bob has been actively smuggling individuals into Canada as the Canadian government has alleged, why hasn't the American government said anything? It's almost like they're colluding with, with Bob, which is shocking. Of the two agencies Boulay claimed to collaborate with, the Border Patrol denied he was an informant, and the other, ICE, said no comment. As for Boulay, his American lawyer says there's a court order that prohibits them from talking about his alleged work with the U.S. government. And if the story wasn't strange enough, the court papers also say that Boulay claims to have pulled strings with the former governor of Washington state, Gary Locke, so he could get a custom license plate. Locke told us he knows Boulay from childhood, but didn't help him get the plate. Though Boulay eventually did get his vanity plate that said this. If you were in the business of smuggling, how's that to shake the law off your tail? Paul Johnson, Global News. Still ahead, the murder hornets are back. How Washington State researchers are trying to track the bee killers back to their nests. And a nice reward for a Victoria taxi driver who says this is the best day of his life. Crews are on scene to a two-car crash here in Burnaby, westbound on Highway 1 between Douglas and Sprott Overpass. Two of the available four lanes are blocked. Is your hearing important? Connect Hearing is Canada's number one physician-referred hearing health care provider. Visit connecthearing.ca for a free hearing test. I'm Trish Jewison in Global 1, high above Highway 1 in Burnaby. The BC Wine Institute is reporting some troubling news about the current and potentially future state of the wine industry. 
A recent survey looking into the impact of COVID-19 has revealed the overwhelming majority of wineries and grape growers have been negatively affected, and the challenges are dire for some. Global's Claudia Van Emmerich has more. It's harvest time in Okanagan vineyards. I mean, it's always exciting. This is what we work for every year. But this year has been a challenging one for the 280 BC wineries hit hard economically by the pandemic. At Tantalus Vineyards in Kelowna, the biggest impact from COVID-19 has been a sharp decline in sales to restaurants forced to close earlier this year. We were at least 40, if not more, percent. We were. And, and that's gone down quite a bit? Hugely. Hugely. The BC Wine Institute painting a bleak outlook for the industry with a recent survey. It reveals 83% of BC wineries and grape growers have been negatively impacted by the current health crisis. Perhaps the most startling finding of all, one in 10 of the respondents said they are at risk of closing. It's hugely significant and I think uh, it tells us just how perilous this industry is. The survey also found that 58% have seen revenue losses, with 35% expecting revenue to decline by up to 50% over the next six months. 55% said they're experiencing reduced access to customers. We're worried about uh, the long-term effect, no doubt. And that's leading to calls for better access to distribution, whether through government or private liquor stores, or allowing wineries themselves to sell off-site. Like they do in Washington State, California, New York, where they can open a small store somewhere uh, where the consumers are. Back at Tantalus Vineyards, the winemaker saying while 2020 has shaped up to be a bad year financially, when it comes to the vintage, it's a very good year. But the quality is exceptional. Zero excuse to not have awesome wine out of the Okanagan this year. Claudia Van Emmer, Global News, Kelowna. Scientists in Washington state are going high tech in their attempt to stop the spread of the dangerous Asian giant hornet. Several of the deadly insects have been found in Washington state and at least two in BC. While not particularly dangerous to humans, the hornets can decimate entire honeybee colonies in just a few hours. Last week, the Washington State Department of Agriculture managed to net one of the hornets and researchers attempted to glue a tiny tracking device to the insect so they could follow it back to its nest. But it didn't go so well. Unfortunately, the glue did not dry fast enough and uh, the uh, tag slid off of it as we were waiting to release the hornet. And unfortunately, its wings came into contact with the glue, uh, rendering it unable to fly. So we were not able to uh, release it to follow it back to the nest. The WSDA has set out a number of traps, including several near beehives, and says given the number of sightings, they're confident they'll be able to catch more hornets. This tracking method has been used before. Scientists at the University of Exeter in the UK tied a tracking chip to the hornet with sewing thread, discovering and destroying nests there. Straight ahead, reaction to Donald Trump's COVID infection. It's a bracing reminder to all of us we have to take this virus seriously. The precautionary move to fly him to the hospital. Also tonight, the beloved Canadian celebrity who can really take a punch, it turns out. 60 years of bringing you the stories that shape our history. 60 years of Global BC. In partnership with Connect Hearing, your hearing is important. Take care of it. 
Traffic is steady over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge in both directions. Just do keep in mind that during the overnight hours, you've got some maintenance causing lane closures in both directions. Is your hearing important? Connect Hearing is Canada's number one physician-referred hearing healthcare provider. Visit connecthearing.ca for a free hearing test. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. I want to thank everybody for the tremendous support. I'm going to Walter Reed Hospital. I think I'm doing very well, but we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I will never forget it. Thank you. U.S. President Donald Trump tweeting out that video message today before boarding Marine One on his way to hospital after testing positive for coronavirus. Trump's COVID diagnosis has led to shock, sympathy, and everything in between as the world reacts to news that the U.S. president tested positive. Trump is already at Walter Reed Hospital less than 24 hours after announcing that he and the First Lady tested positive. Hours after announcing that he and First Lady Melania Trump had tested positive for COVID-19, President Trump taken to Walter Reed, the nation's premier military hospital, for monitoring. The White House physician says the president was fatigued but in good spirits and given an antibody cocktail as a precaution. The doctor says the First Lady has only a mild cough and headache. At 74 and overweight, the president is considered at higher risk for serious complications. So the next few days will be critical to monitoring the president. Now begins a high-stakes hunt for anyone President Trump has had contact with during a busy week, including Tuesday night's debate, during which the Trump family violated a mandatory mask mandate. The president's senior advisor, Hope Hicks, who traveled with him this week, tested positive yesterday. The White House chief of staff saying today they learned of her diagnosis as President Trump was leaving for a New Jersey fundraiser last night. It was deemed safe for the president to go. Um, he socially distanced. Hours before revealing his diagnosis, the president downplayed coronavirus and a pre-recorded message for a charity event. I just want to say that the end of the pandemic is in sight. Democratic rival Joe Biden tested negative today. Sending my prayers for the health and safety of the First Lady and President, uh, the President of the United States. This is not a matter of politics. It's a bracing reminder to all of us that we have to take this virus seriously. President Trump forced to cancel in-person appearances in a critical setback to his campaign, if not his health, 32 days before the election. In Washington, Alice Barr, NBC News. Well, the New York Police Department is trying to identify a suspect in an assault where the victim is believed to be Canadian actor Rick Moranis. This video has been posted by the NYPD. They say an unidentified male struck the victim in the head with a closed fist, knocking him to the ground. The victim was taken to hospital for head, back and hip pain. Moranis, of course, is known for roles in Ghostbusters and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids as Bob McKenzie on SCTV and recently appeared in this ad with Ryan Reynolds after a decades-long break from acting. Reynolds has tweeted this morning that he's glad that Rick is okay. 
In Health Matters tonight, there have been claims that masks can trap carbon dioxide against the face, leading to CO2 poisoning. But a new study debunks that. Scientists at the University of Miami looked at changes in oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in a group of adults wearing masks. They found the effects were minimal, even among patients with severe lung disease. Experts say if you do feel short of breath while wearing a mask, it's likely from the restriction of airflow. They recommend slowing down or removing the mask if you're at a safe distance from others. Still ahead, another flashback to the 1970s and the birth of environmentalism. Why don't we make it a green piece? And that stuck. The humble beginnings of a movement with more than 3 million members today. And in sports, one of the best baseball players in the province. And the pink ponytail is only part of this remarkable story. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Victoria police are honoring a cab driver and crediting his actions for leading to the capture of a wanted high risk sex offender. Last Sunday, Mohammed Rashid picked up a passenger who he soon realized was Scott Jones, the subject of a series of public warnings and a Canada wide arrest warrant. Catherine Urquhart reports. Thank you for stepping up and for helping keep our community safe. Mohammed Rashid is a hero after helping to catch an extremely dangerous sex offender. Victoria police have honored him with the Civic Service Award. I applaud the fact that uh, he took the action that he did and how he did it. In September, 56-year-old Scott Jones was wanted on a Canada-wide warrant. He had breached his parole conditions and a number of public warnings were issued. Jones was on the lam for three days until last weekend when cabbie Mohammed Rashid was flagged down in Victoria. His ride made a strange request to buy some clothes. Then he thought, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. The police looking for me. Once inside the Langford Superstore, Rashid called police. They arrived minutes later. But before they could get him into custody, Jones tried to start a fire in the taxi. Police had to break a window to arrest him. I felt I have to do my duty as a Canadian citizen. And this is what I did. And I am very proud. Scott Jones has convictions for rape and for attempted rape of three young girls in 1982. Five years later, while on parole, he was charged with another three counts of sexual assault with a weapon and unlawful confinement. He was declared a dangerous offender and given an indeterminate sentence. Despite his history, in July he was given day parole, then breached his conditions. I don't think it's an exact science when we're dealing with human beings um, as to when is it safe. Mohammed Rashid acknowledges his cap needs some repairs, but he has no regrets. This humble hero, happy he helped get a dangerous sex offender off the street before he could hurt anyone else. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. That driver deserves a big tip. Way to go. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, okay, let's find out what's coming this weekend in the weather. Yvonne is in for Christy tonight. Hi, Yvonne.
Hi there. Uh, we have been seeing fog for the morning hours and then hazy for the afternoon. We still have some smoke in the region and this will impact our weekend as well as the smoky skies bulletin. So I'll show you more on the smoke forecast in just a moment. We're just before sunset this evening. A spectacular shot that's just overlooking English Bay and a couple of photos that were submitted from this morning with the fog. Uh, this one a great shot taken by Dan in Mission and in Richmond earlier this morning taken by Al. So thank you so much. It warmed up today despite the uh, filtered sunshine away from the water right now. Even into Abbotsford, feeling like 28 today. It felt like 29 degrees, so pushing closer to 30 degrees away from the water. We've got the heat ridge of high pressure that is in place, but we do have the stagnant air. Overnight tonight, we've got some fog developing. We'll see that for the morning hours. A fair bit of cloud cover as well. And then for the afternoon, the weather picture will be hazy skies once again and a range in temperatures between 18 away from the water, hoping to bump up to 22 degrees. The moisture and precipitation will stay along the northern half of the province, picking up for tomorrow. Continuing to be unsettled through the day. It could push in across the central interior and this same system is going to move across the south coast and it'll likely clip the northern tip of Vancouver Island. That'll be for Sunday morning and I anticipate that we'll have a fair bit of cloud cover for Sunday morning along the south coast. Here's a smoke forecast and what we are looking at. So it is going to continue across the region. The interior, both central and southern half will be included within that. I've taken a snapshot of the air quality health index. For example, areas near Coquitlam sitting at four and the following spots for house down as well as Whistler and the Sunshine Coast, a Smoky Skies Bulletin has been issued to the air quality index for both days out of the weekend. If you do have respiratory issues, you will want to be very cautious. Now, the northern half of the province seeing the precipitation. There is fog for most areas across the central interior. The southern interior will heat up for tomorrow with highs closer to 25 degrees. We'll see fog across the region once again for the south coast, hazy towards the afternoon. It is going to warm up, hoping to see the smoke clear out on our Monday onwards. All right tonight's weather window a great shot that was captured and this one of the harvest moon taken in Maple Ridge by Mark last night guys can't get enough of those moon picks all right thanks Yvonne all right Barry is in for Squire tonight what do you have coming up Barry well it's uh, it's fun in our job to kind of discover all the great young uh, talented athletes that we have around here and uh, maybe the most promising baseball pitcher in all of BC is a 15 year old girl from Abbotsford I'm hoping to Hopefully hit 85 miles per hour soon, and then possibly 90. Yeah, Rain Padgham plays alongside the boys and beats up, them, uh, up on them a lot. We'll have her story. Look forward to that, Barry. And millions of supporters in more than 55 countries, the global organization that got its start in B.C. Squire's taking a well-deserved break today. Barry's in for him and uh, looking forward to a little Fitz magic this weekend. You are. Well, I like the Dolphins. You like the Dolphins. Huh? Well, a lot of Seahawks fans. Maybe they like him too, just, just not this <laughs> weekend. Uh, thanks, guys. The uh, Seahawks are big favorites to remain undefeated as they travel to Miami to take on the 1-2 and two Dolphins on Sunday. Russell Wilson has been ridiculous so far. 14 touchdown passes in three games as the Hawks have put up an average of 37 points per game. But Miami's veteran quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick, is coming off a pretty spectacular game himself. The 37-year-old is now on his eighth NFL team, but he isn't slowing down. It's 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 really something to watch him play right now. He is on it. This is as good as he's ever looked to me, and 
He looks like he's playing on house money. You know, he's, he's just going for it in all phases, all aspects of his play. He's running well. He's challenging the line of scrimmage. It's really a sight to see. You know, not many guys this late in their career can function at such a high level. And so uh, we'll, we get, we're going to get challenged by him. French Open third round. Canada's Eugenie Bouchard taking on Polish teenager Iga Swiatek. Bouchard has rediscovered her old form the past few weeks. Has played a lot of tennis, though. This was one of her fire in her uh, moments, smashing the backhand winner down the line. But she lost the first set 6-3. Swiatek controlled the match. Great recovery here to chase down the lob. And then hits the backhand winner down the line. Broke Bouchard six times out of nine service games. Went up 4-2. Bouchard said afterwards she felt some fatigue, but Swiatek full value hits another winner, and she takes it in straight sets. Just one Canadian left in the singles. Layla Annie Fernandez plays her third-round match tomorrow. Baseball playoffs, Marlins and Cubs. Game two from Wrigley Field. Miami won the opener in this best of three. No scoring until the seventh. Garrett Cooper with a solo shot off Yu Darvish. Marlins added another, led 2-0. And that was plenty. Their pitchers did the rest, shutting out the Cubs on five hits. Marlins advance. Cubs are done after the 2-0 Miami victory. The division series start on Monday. Well, there's a lot of baseball players right here in B.C. who have already realized their dreams and had great major league careers. An Abbotsford teenager has her sights set on baseball glory as well. And after you watch her play, you'll believe anything is possible. She's been raining unhittable pitches on hitters since she was a toddler. Now at 15 and with a fastball as high as 83 miles per hour, Rain Padgham never tires of striking out the boys. No, it never gets old. It's always going to be part of the game. Even though she's always played with the boys, she wants everyone to know she is not one of the boys, hence the pink look. I did it because when I was growing up, I had like short brown hair, so everyone thought I was a guy. I just dyed my hair pink so everyone knew I was a girl. How does a girl become one of the best baseball pitchers in the province? Well, it's all in the family. Her brother, dad, and mom all play, and her dad taught her the proper throwing mechanics at a young age. You know, guys my age throw up to 80 miles an hour. She can throw up to that part, right? And the fact that she, she has the ability to have location on that ball, she's able to put it on the corners, inside, outside, wherever she wants. She has the ability to do that, and it's really good. Because she's a girl, she might sit, say, longer than a boy would or uh, not get an opportunity that a boy would. So she really had to get in there and push herself harder uh, to be able to prove that she was uh, able to be there and should be there. That's not an issue now. Everyone around here knows all about Rain Padgham, and she not only competes against the boys, she excels against them. She's going to be one of our better pitchers this year exceeded what I what I had thought you know just hearing about her but no she really uh, she's a real deal so it's uh, pretty exciting to have her around for sure. We all treat her the same way we all treat her equally and once we get out there if she can throw hard she can throw whatever then that's all that matters. Rain's dream is to play college baseball in the U.S. which is a possibility there's precedent right here in B.C. Tawasin's Marika Leszek has already blazed that trail, having just played her first season of NCAA Division III in New Hampshire with the boys. 
you're coming out there and all eyes are on you and it's everything you do from if you mess up or if you make a good play. So I think really showing them that you have the skill, which she definitely does, is awesome. And throwing that hard is crazy. So proving just with a number that you're that you can be there. It just kind of opens that door, makes it, you know, visible to all the younger girls, especially that there's hope and like if they work for it, they can definitely make it. And she does have a backup plan. Rain is trying out for the Abbotsford Secondary Varsity football team as a receiver. And it's probably smart to bet she'll catch on with them as well. Wow. And Chris, you can see by that last, she also yeah. plays rugby. I was going to say a that. a star rugby player, so <laughs> there's, there's nothing she can't do. And Clearly. we will keep her eye on her going forward. All-around athlete. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a story. Thanks very much, yeah, Barry. Great future. All right, thanks, Barry. Let's check in with Jay Durant for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jay? Thank you, Sophie. RCMP on Vancouver Island are appealing for information after an unusual find on a local beach. Police say a woman discovered a human placenta while walking at Goose Spit in Comox this morning. It's believed the discarded organ may be associated to a mother or baby in need of medical help. Anyone with information is asked to contact Comox Valley RCMP or Crime Stoppers. And it turns out some things are not always good on paper. What a motorcyclist in Burnaby was busted for twice in just over a month. We'll have those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11. Intriguing. All right. Thanks, Jay. All right. When we come back, the birth of a green piece right here in Vancouver. That's next as we look back at the 1970s. Global BC 60th anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician referred hearing provider. traveling back through time the last few weeks here tonight as we look back on 60 years of bringing you the news a look at one of the world's most well-known environmental groups and how it got its start right here in BC it was the 1970s when a group of Vancouverites gave birth to Greenpeace Jordan Armstrong picks up the story after nearly 50 years Greenpeace now claims more than 3 million supporters in over 55 countries the global organization got its start in BC with a motley crew in a Vancouver church basement. Bill Darnell, who was an another one of the original guys who's still alive, said, why don't we make it a green piece? And that stuck. And it, it was very appropriate because we were trying to combine hum humanitarianism with the, the new consciousness of environment. The first Greenpeace campaign targeted American nuclear testing in Amchitka, Alaska. Well, when we were up in the Aleutian Islands, it was pretty heartwarming to hear that tens of thousands of students were marching across the Lionsgate Bridge and all through Vancouver in support of what we were doing. A campaign Greenpeace won when U.S. President Nixon canceled the remaining H-bomb tests. But nuclear exercises were still happening in the South Pacific, carried out by France. So when a French Navy vessel visited Vancouver Harbor, Greenpeace activists were there. Uh, we had to cut pretty close and their wake almost swamped us, but the uh, sailors were all smiling and one of them actually jumped out a line and flashed a peace, a peace sign at us. So there goes his shore leave. But in the 80s, the French fought back with a bomb. 
New Zealand Navy divers get their first look at the shattered hull of the Rainbow Warrior. Growing, Greenpeace moved on to save whales, seals, dolphins, tuna, stop ocean pollution, air pollution, oil pollution, prevent global warming, climate change, and protect forests in Brazil and B.C., demonstrating local issues were often international. Well, as I say, it was a wild ride. It was 24-7. Uh, we did nothing but eat, sleep, and drink Greenpeace. And it all started in Vancouver in 1971. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. So we looked at the 70s all week. 70s were a good decade. 70s were a good decade. 1980s were a fun decade, too, because Expo. Oh, yes. It's Expo and... Some other bad stuff that happened in the music. 80s, too. <laughs> Some interesting makeup and fashion and yeah. hairstyles. That's right. We get to see it all over again next mm -hmm. week. And then some people were born in the 80s, too. Yes. Not me. <laughs> Yeah, not me either. Everybody <laughs> talks about Expo, like I remember it. Uh, <laughs> oh, Yvonne, you're so young. This is a good year. All right, uh, final word on the weather, Yvonne. <laughs> we are going to see some haze in the mix. Fog for the morning hours, hazy for the afternoon. Uh, smoke lingering for both Saturday and Sunday, hoping to see a change in the forecast. And with the winds on Monday, a bit of a clearing is on the way. And a heads up, if you're in a house sound along the Sunshine Coast, uh, we do have the Smoky Skies Bulletin for those regions. All right. Thanks very much, Yvonne. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend, everybody.